I wonder if we'll ever be put into songs or tales. What? I wonder if people will ever say, let's hear the writer's nook. Josh? They'll say, that's one of my favorite podcasts. What are you doing? The Chandlers really were courageous, weren't they, Dad? Josh. Yes, my boy, the most famousest of podcasters, and that's saying a lot. We're not doing that. We are cutting this. You better not put this on the final version. Hello and welcome to the Writer's Nook, where written words speak. I am your host, Caleb Chandler. And I'm your other host, Josh. This week's episode has the theme of mad scientists. N- no. No. We, we're not doing... We talked about this. Yeah. That is hard... There, that the, was your There idea. just happen to be scientists in all three of these stories. Mad madness. Most I, of them. Maybe... I don't maybe. see it. I mean, uh... <sighs> mad scientists, Caleb. This episode, we'll be sharing three stories with you that all happen to have scientists in them. The and first, madness. The first is by Cami Elo called Bedlam, which takes place at Bedlam. The second story is The Robot Maid by Susie Sticksrude, which it might surprise you to find out is about a maid who's a robot. Our final story is Windows of the Soul by me. It's about the hardships that some scientists have to go through with their assistants. Sounds riveting. Yeah, you just can't get the help. Anyway, as always, we're looking for submissions from listeners like you, which you can send to thewritersnookpodcast at gmail.com. These can be poems, stories, songs, spam emails, doesn't matter. Yeah, we especially want to hear from the Prince of Nigeria. He still has not gotten me my money, but I, I'm confident that he'll get it to me. Just introduce Bedlam. Okay, well, it's about seven minutes long, and it's coming up right now. Bedlam, written and read by Cami Elo. You walk into the room, your white slippers sinking to the carpet. You close the door behind you and switch on the light, squinting as your eyes adjust to the harsh fluorescent glare. In the corner of the room stands a chair with a four-point restraint, the talk of the hospital. You shiver in your thin white gown, wondering if it's the cold blast from the air conditioning or the ominous, cruel look of the chair. It's made of some kind of black metal, with leather cuffs and straps. It looks like a skeleton of a chair, all sharp angles and exposed screws and joints. Your curiosity is not stated yet. The rumors and whisperings of what this chair really is fly rapidly through your mind. No, really. That's why so many of us are disappearing, Anne had whispered to you during lunch one day, leaning so far over the table that her loose white shirt had fallen into the spaghetti sauce. It's because he's sending patients to other time periods. You're crazy, you scoffed, twirling the unappetizing spaghetti around with your fork. No, you are, Anne said angrily, pointing her plastic fork at you. We all are retards, Justin rolled his eyes, carefully cutting his noodles into one-inch segments, else we won't be here. I am not crazy, Anne directed her furious fork pointing at Justin. Yeah, says the girl who thinks she's a virgin Mary, you sniggered. Of all the ways to explain to one's parents why she was pregnant at 16, that one definitely takes the cake. I mean, Dr. Crook is probably crazier than all of us put together, but he's definitely not crazy enough to make a time machine, Justin said painstakingly cleaning his noodles of the sauce. Anne laid down her fork. But where else would they all go? Yesterday, Mama Jane disappeared when she went in for her daily counseling session, and they disappear every day. 
Ever since that chair came in, things started getting weird. It's the only explanation. The only explanation, you laughed outright. Yes, people disappear and obviously the only explanation is that Dr. Crook is forcing them into some freaking time machine, which happens to be a chair, and catapulting them to different time periods. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Do you have any ideas, genius? Anne hissed, leaning so far over the table her stringing brown hair joined her shirt in the sauce. Justin cut his eyes at her and winced, now splitting his paper napkin into perfect two-inch segments. Not really, you admitted, covering the remains of your non-edible lunch with a napkin. But I'm pretty sure if I had any theories, it wouldn't involve time traveling. Where did you get the idea anyway? Justin had asked, trying not to eye Anne's sauce-covered hair and shirt. Well, Anne had cleared her throat and folded her thin, pale hands on the table. Johnson told me that once he was passing by Dr. Crook's office, and for a split second, heard screaming and felt as though a strong wind passed through. It was over as soon as it began, and Johnson swore he had seen Jenna and Dr. Crook go into the office an hour before, but then Dr. Crook came out alone. There are literally so many explanations to why Dr. Crook came out alone, you said. Like, maybe Jenna fainted, or took a nap. Jenna disappeared? Justin had looked up, his freckled face suddenly brightening. Thank goodness, I could stand that chick. I know we're all crazy, but she was all kinds of whacked up. What about the screaming? Or the strong wind? That office has no windows. Where would the wind come from? Anne had insisted, her bulgy green eyes bulging out even more. You sighed, knowing that once Anne got a hold of something, she would never let go until something happened. Like getting thrown into a mental hospital. Or worse. Out of the corner of your eye, you noticed a dining hall monitor squinting at your table, her hawk-like vision and hearing detecting negative energy. Quickly, you had changed the topic. So why do we wear white? No idea, but it totally clashes with my eye color, Justin joked, immediately catching on to what you were trying to do. Despite his strange obsession with cutting things, including small woodland creatures, as the grapevine had reported, you appreciated Justin's quickness of mind. You went to bed later that evening, staying awake because of your roommate's weird, sleepy mumblings and your own thoughts. True, the disappearances of the patients had made everyone a bit spooked, but you couldn't stop thinking of Anne's crazy theories. You knew the hospital was over capacity, and it seemed odd that just when that fact was made known, people started disappearing, leaving empty beds open. It was almost too convenient. Finally, you had had enough. You quietly slipped your feet into the white slippers and padded softly out of the room. You found Johnson and explained to him the conversation at lunch. He looked concerned and then gently told you that while Dr. Crook was odd, he certainly didn't have the capacity to make a time machine. Really, that technology wouldn't exist for another hundred years. His voice calmed your fears, but your eyes kept going to the keys on his belt. After 10 minutes, several tears, and your best damsel in distress voice, you had Johnson's keys and several warnings. Now you stand there in Dr. Crook's counseling room, shivering in your thin, shapeless white gown, curious about the chair, and yet afraid at the same time. Suddenly, it feels like all the air is sucked out of your lungs, and you stumble backwards, completely disoriented, the colors of the room blurred into one confusing kaleidoscope. As soon as it's ended, it's over, and you find yourself on your hands and knees on the carpet, gasping for breath. You look up, and your heart jumps. Mama Jane is sitting on the chair, her wrists and ankles cuffed. Her light brown hair is in disarray, her white clothes dirtied, and she looks at you with panic in her eyes. Luis! Mama Jane makes a motion of getting up, but she sits down quickly when she realizes she is stuck. Quick, get me out! You move slowly towards her, your stomach twisting in anxiety and confusion. Nothing makes sense. Mama Jane went missing yesterday afternoon, and now she was here, when she wasn't two minutes before. With clammy, shaking hands, you undo the restraints, cold sweat running down your back. You fumble with the cuffs, but finally get them open, the leather wet with your sweat. As soon as she's free, Mama Jane stands up and grasps your arms in her hands, her fingers completely encircling your forearms. 
Your knees feel weak and you lean into Mama Jane's touch. She supports your weight and sits you gently down. Her soothing voice calms the chaos in your brain, and everything seems to return to normal. Until you hear the familiar monotone voice of Dr. Crook. Immediately, you go into panic mode and stand straight up, but then fall backwards violently, your wrists and ankles strapped. Your heart falls into your stomach. Dr. Crook appears from behind Mama Jane and walks towards you. Oh, this one. He makes a face, leaning in closer to you. I always had trouble with her. Nearly got herself checked out a week after she came in. You hear clicking noises as he fiddles with something on the side of the chair. Suddenly, that breathless feeling hits you again, and you silently scream from the bright light invading your head. When your world rights itself again, you find yourself lying on a cold, cobblestone street. You sit up and stare at the building sign in front of you, Bethlehem Royal Hospital. Dr. Crook walks down the steps, wearing a long black cloak and swinging a cane. The lovely thing about the 17th century is that we don't have overcrowding rules. He smiles, bending over you. Come on now, Louise. You should be excited about staying in one of the most famous mental hospitals in history. That was Bedlam by Cami E. Lowe. I'm here with the author. Hello, Cami. Hello. So what was the inspiration for this story? Um, this was written two years ago. This was for my science fiction writing with Prof. Dixon here at the Master's College. And as I recall during that semester, I had this weird fascination with mental hospitals, especially those a long time ago where there wasn't much government regulation, if any. And then I decided to write in second person because I decided to make my life 10,000 times more difficult. <laughs> and that's how the story was written. <laughs> so, um... What did possess you to make your life 10,000 times more difficult? Um, I'm not an author. Like, well, I'm an author. I, I wrote this book story, so I guess I am. But I just like to push myself and my creativity, whether... Like, I took science fiction writing because I'm not good at writing science fiction, nor do I like particularly reading science fiction. And But I took it because I'm like, you know, I should learn to write all genres. And I actually do like science fiction. I do like reading it now. And writing it is still a challenge, but it's a lot less challenging after I took that class. You said that some of your inspiration came from learning about those mental institutions at that time. Is there any ways in which that factors in? Is this like based in reality partially or? Yes, um, actually, while I was Googling mental institutions, I came across one, it's the most famous, well, most infamous one. It's called Bethlehem Royal Hospital. It's in London, and it was one of the most notorious mental hospitals. And the word bedlam, which means like craziness, out of control, actually comes from this hospital's name. And so I kind of wrote based on that because it was just utter madness. Like people would take tours in the hospital just to see like the craziness of the inmates. And um, Dr. Crook was the hospital's keeper, and he was actually eventually fired for his absenteeism and corruption. And he was absent because he was actually in the 21st century. I buy it. We'll go with it. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> so a lot of the story has been researched. Did any of that factor into creating your characters? Yeah, like I said, I wrote this story two years ago, so I can't remember exactly what I did for each of the characters. I remember that Anne's a pathological liar, I think, because she lies that she's a Virgin Mary. Or that could be Louise, too. Louise is the narrator because she almost got out of the hospital, so she almost tricked him to thinking she was okay. I can't really remember, though. And then Justin, he's kind of like OCD slash psychopath. 
<laughs> so I, when I wrote this story, I had specific disorders for each of the characters, but because it's been two years, I honestly can't remember, and I wish I did. All right, no worries. So what is it you like about writing fiction, and what do you look for in fiction that, you know, you gravitate toward? I like writing fiction because it's just another art form. I'm a cinema and digital arts major, well, communication cinema and digital arts major, and so my art form is mainly through film, but writing is such an important thing to master, I think. I love reading. I've always loved reading. I've read well, probably thousands and thousands of books, and I don't want to be an author because I just don't have that capacity to write a thousand-page novel, which is a very long novel, if I, now that I think about it. But um, when I write fiction, I try to write something that is interesting. And sometimes I'm the, if I'm the only one who finds it interesting or finds it funny, that's okay, story of my life. But <laughs> um, I just love fiction because you can make your own world, even if that world is warped. It doesn't always have to be beautiful. Sometimes that world can be a little dark, and that's okay. Speaking of reading, um, just for shameless plug purposes, you have a podcast, yeah? Yes, I do. It's called Readings and Ramblings. It's on SoundCloud. I don't really know how to work SoundCloud that well, but if you just type in Readings and Ramblings or my name, C-A-M-M-Y space Y-L-O, you should be able to find it. And basically on that podcast, I read a book and then I review it. I try not to put too much of my opinion in it. But I just like tell the characters, the plot, the authors, the genres. Um, if you like this kind of thing, you'll like this book. It's like a movie review podcast, but I use books. <laughs> All right, well, be sure to check that out. Cammie, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. All right, for the next four minutes, sit back, relax, and listen to The Robot Maid. Hope you like it. The Robot Maid by Susie Sticks Red. Read by Hannah Walsh. Samantha skipped along the hallway towards her father's lab, dragging her doll along behind her and singing a happy little tune. She had tried over and over the last three days to sneak in and see his top-secret project that he had told her would make him rich and famous someday, but so far she hadn't been successful. Ever since her mother had died in her father's big lab explosion two years ago, she was no longer allowed to enter his lab or watch his experiments as she used to when she was younger. Dr. Parker had been working in there all day, but he had finally gone to the kitchen to fix dinner, and Samantha knew it was the perfect time. Sam reached cautiously for the door handle, peeking around behind her. The coast was clear, and her tiny figure slipped through the crack between the door and the wall. Once inside, she breathed a sigh of relief and glanced around. The lab looked no different than it used to, back when her mother was alive. She surveyed his desk, looking at the tall stacks of papers, and then immediately jumped in his chair and began to spin round and round. The wheels on the bus go round and round, Sam sang out, giggling as she hugged her doll tightly to her. She stopped the chair short as she suddenly spotted the tall robotic maid who stood in the corner, looking at her. Her smile had been pasted on somewhat askew, which made her entire expression appear to be one of disgust. Sam climbed out of the chair and slowly walked towards the corner. The maid never once took her eyes off Sam's face. You look funny, Sam giggled as she stopped in front of the maid, staring up into her big, green glass eyes. She glanced around, spotting a small battery on her father's desk, 
and she grabbed it. Rushing back to the maid, she searched around for an opening and finally shoved it up the robot's nostril hole. Leaning forward, Sam reached for the maid's long hair and gave it a vicious yank. Suddenly, with a whirring and a loud hiss, the robot's mouth flew open and a long red tongue lolled out of her mouth like a dog who was thirsty. She bared long teeth at Sam and leaped directly into her face, reaching a bony fist towards Sam's hair. Sam screamed, jerking away from the maid and running out of the door, dropping her doll in the process. Daddy! Daddy! she shrieked, darting out of the room and racing down the hall to the kitchen, barreling straight into her father's surprised chest. The maid tried to bite me! The maid tried to bite me! Sam, what on earth are you talking about? Dr. Parker stared at her. The maid! It tried to bite me! The little girl screamed into his face. Sam, the maid isn't even alive yet. Her father pushed her out of the way and rushed back down the hall to the corner where the maid had sat just minutes ago. He shoved his papers around and knelt down to look under the desk. When he came up empty-handed, he glared at the little girl leaning on the desk beside him and then glanced into the corner at the robot who was zigzagging back and forth, tugging on her own long hair. Sam, how many times have I told you not to come in here? How often have I said not to touch my things? The maid wasn't finished yet, and who knows what she will do. You never put the battery in until the robot's personality is completely programmed, otherwise you can't control how they will act. He ran his finger down a piece of paper lying on his desk, muttering to himself out loud. Destructive robot complexes are disabled only by retrieving the battery and reprogramming the brain. You've destroyed my robot. He glowered at the little girl standing in front of him. She had recovered her doll from the floor and now stood clutching it tightly to her chest. Dr. Parker stared in anger as the robot snatched up a floor plant, crushing it as she hugged it to her bosom, just as Sam was doing with her doll. Sam burst into tears. I'll fix it, she cried. She hugged her father, who glared at her, and then shakily took a step toward the robot, arms wide open. The robot dropped the plant and approached Sam, extending its arms. Sam hugged the robot and then quickly reached up its nose, grabbing the battery and handing it to her father. How do you do that? Dr. Parker stared at the maid standing quietly in front of him. Sam smiled. It's magic, she said. That was the robot made by Susie Stixford. Hope you liked it. We're here with the author. Hello. Hey. So, uh, if you don't mind telling us a little about it, what went into creating this story and the character of the robot maid? Well, I had an assignment where I needed to come up with a character that was artificial life, and I was having a little bit of difficulty because I'd never written anything that was sci-fi before. And so, when I was younger, I used to write a lot of telltales, and so I decided to do almost a kind of tall tale take on the story, but then implement the sci-fi character, which was the artificial life, which was the robot. So you mentioned that you've written a lot of tall tales. That brings me to uh, my next question, which was about the ending. I know that in the sci-fi world especially, magic can be uh, frowned upon and uh, make the some of the nerds shake their fists. So. At the end, you had the uh, daughter say that it was magic. What kind of brought that on? I mean, why did you decide to end it there? I kind of wanted to add a little bit of irony because with a little kid, everything to them basically is magic. 
and they don't see the greater workings behind it. And her dad had made the robot and everything. So she was able to stop it. It wasn't really magic, but at the same time, it just to her, what she did seemed like magic. So you said you hadn't written much sci-fi until this semester. What genres do you tend to lean toward in your reading and writing and why? I like to read a lot of mysteries just because I like to see how the writers foreshadow things without actually stating them. And then when you go back and read after you've gotten to the end, you're able to just see the process. And I like to try and figure out in my writing, how I can do that. Um, writing, it's been a lot, like I said, when I was younger, I did a lot of tall tales, and then I've tried some mysteries, and a lot of my writing has a little bit of a Western twist on it. So why is that? Why do you particularly like Westerns, or have you been writing that into your work? So when I was younger, my siblings and I used to really like to watch old westerns but then my younger brother had an assignment in I think third grade where he had to write a tall tale western story and he was all upset because he was frustrated and couldn't do it so I decided to write one and show him how to do it and then he got excited and we just never stopped writing them so cool Okay, so last question. What was it that inspired you to want to write in the first place, and why are you sticking with it now, and what are you looking to do with that? I don't remember what really got me started writing, because I've been writing as long as I can remember, but I used to have a real fascination with reading and words, and I like to tell stories. So my younger brother and I would tell each other stories all the time, and then my parents encouraged me to start writing them down because I had all these elaborate stories I was making up and I, I just had no record of them. So I started writing them down and I guess it's just been a love that that's kind of developed over the years. Great. Well, we hope you stick with it. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Up next, weighing in at approximately two minutes, is Windows of the Troll. It's Windows of the Soul. A story about a brutish creature living under a bridge having trouble with his PC. No, it's about a mad scientist having trouble with his useless assistant. How about that? Windows of the Soul. Written and read by Joshua Chandler. Henderson was on fire. Sadly, this was not true of him before his decease, but at least my lab assistant would finally prove himself useful. Thankfully, the suppression system in Subject 1138's cell had activated before Henderson was totally consumed, and so my research could begin. Subject 1138 had never shown any pyrokinetic abilities before. By what mechanism had it ignited my erstwhile associate? As I examined Henderson's remains, I made sure to position myself near the cell window to observe the subject. The eyes were, as best as I could tell, the primary means it used for expression. When testing its pain response, the orbs in its translucent head showed a burning forest. Rain was falling on the blasted heath I could now see through the window. This was something new. Perhaps the decrease in the sedative drip was allowing it to experience a fuller emotional range. 
It certainly was moving its hominid limbs more than usual against the restraints. The burning sensation in my lower abdomen caused me to look up from the microscope I had brought over to the examination table. The landscape in its eyes was another new one. Its gaze seemed much more directed. As I processed the image of the decaying corpse in the middle of the heath, I realized some dormant roundworms in me must have been awoken. I could feel the colony emigrating outward from my intestines toward my skin. The subject can communicate telepathically. How fascinating! How could 1138 communicate so well with a terrestrial parasite? Did this lower form of life... Entry becomes illegible at this point. Theron Kiner, cremated as per Governmental Regulation 1015. Okay, that was Windows of the Troll by Joshua Chandler. I'm here now with the author, and um, I think the first question we all have is, where did you come up with Bernie, the lovable little troll? Okay, fine. So, what was your inspiration for Windows of the Soul? Well, I had an assignment, which sounds rather, uh, how do you say, mercenary, but, uh... It does. But, uh, I had to create this form of alien life in a story, and I didn't want to just do a description, so I came up with this story of a uh, scientist examining the life form, who turns out to be this sociopathic, real, real nice guy. Cool. So, um, your character at the end of the story is eaten by a parasite. Is that a personal fear of yours? Uh, you know, not really. I'm on pretty good terms with parasites. I mean, I hang out with you all day. <laughs> Alright, one last question. What possessed you to want to write? Well, I was inspired by other writers, C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, and then sci-fi in particular, uh, Timothy Zahn. Kind of reading his stuff pointed me in the direction that I wanted to do that. Um, yeah. Well, that's it, folks. The Writer's Nook is protected under a Creative Commons license. Be a friend, and don't pretend you wrote our stuff.